Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words you have torn in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Yisrael. Amen. So, uh, we look at this passage from Exodus chapter 20. It says, God spoke all these statements saying, and he begins by saying, I am Adonai your God who took you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. I want to begin by looking at some commentary as we've approached Sinai and the children of Israel had learned a secret, evidently, from the angels. And it was the Naseh Venishma. Rabbi Eliezer says in Shabbat Shabbos Slika 88a, At the time Israel said, we will do, before saying, we will listen, in Exodus 24-7, a heavenly voice went forth and said of them, Who revealed to my children this secret? that is used by the ministering angels who are described in Psalm 103, verse 20. First they do, and then they listen. This is the secret to life, the secret to serving God. This is to be a people that are willing to accept his word at face value and to do it and then listen to it. Meaning that we have to negate ourselves. Moses, the, the sages say that Moses was talking to Hashem at the burning bush and he was saying, listen, Israel, is, they're idolaters. They're pagans. They're at the 49th level of impurity in Egypt. You have to understand something that we talk about the Roman occupation. If you look at the study of the Roman occupation of Israel, you find that we invited the Romans in. The Romans captured Israel without firing a shot, so to speak. What what was happening is that there there was contention between the Hasmoneans and the Pharisees, and there was this infighting, and we invited Rome in to be a mediator, be an arbiter. And they came with their legions and said, we will arbitrate this fight. Y'all are both under us, so now it's over. Welcome. We did the same thing in Egypt. We were there under our brother Yosef, the viceroy. Our Abba died. We took him back to the land of of Canaan and buried him in Machpelah. We stayed in Egypt because Yosef was our brother and life was good there. Famine was, you know, ongoing. Then the famine ended. Our brother died. The only reason we were in Egypt because there was a famine and we were there and our brother Yosef was taking care of us. But we got comfortable. We started, we li- started listening to Egyptian music on the radio. We liked the Egyptian cars. We liked the Egyptian festivals. They were fun. The re- guy in the red suit, you know. Uh, no, he's been around for a long time. He just moved differently back then. It was a Christmas sphinx back then. It was later. It was changed. But... Uh, um, no, no, but you have to understand something because that whole holiday is, is this, the birthday of the sun god. 
And who was Pharaoh? He was the son of who? Roth, the son. So um, anyway, so we got down there, and when Yosef died, we were like, oh, well, you know, no sense in just rushing back. I mean, <laughs> besides, you know, it's Nile front property is really nice. I mean, it's kind of a crock to sell it now. We just stay right where we are. So we stayed. We should, we should have gone back. And in reality, we probably should have gone back when we took Yaakov back, our father. We should have stayed in Canaan, and, and, but we didn't. We chose to go back. And so the sages bring down that the land took hold of us. The culture took hold of us. In fact, the sages bring down there weren't any fences or any guards that kept us in slavery. We kept ourselves there. Do you realize that? Do you realize that there wasn't, that, that, that the gates were wide open? At any point, we could have just walked out of Egypt, but we decided not to. We, we, we were, we were in, encased in the culture. In other words, so Moses is saying to God, listen, there's, they're there on their own. And Hashem says, listen, the merit that, the merit that I see in Israel, whereby I am going to rescue them, is the merit they have, the inner potential they have to accept my Torah. The reason that we're all here today, because I think anybody would say, well, why am I here? Why do I know this and the, a thousand people down the street don't? And the answer is because Hashem sees within you the potential to say, I will do and I will hear. The same way that he chose Abraham. Why did he choose Abraham? Because he knew Abraham would choose his children, or excuse me, would teach his children. That was the number one reason why God chose Abraham, because he knew that Abraham would, be, would pass it down and would encourage his children to keep the faith, as it were. And so the angels are not like human beings. They don't have a Yetzirah. They don't have that. They just, they're created to do a certain thing, and they do it. And they, they don't have aspirations or goals. Man is unique in that we have all of that and we have the ability to, to nullify ourselves in favor of God's will. To look at something that we desire, to look at something that we want, to look at something that we would like to do and say, I'd like to do all of that, but I would rather do God's will in my life. And it says here that this was the secret of the angels. Why would Israel, I love this quote from, there's an art school Messora series on the Ten Commandments, and it has this quote in there. It says, why would Israel endure the wilderness? Why would Israel leave the luxury of Egypt and endure the wilderness? And to a certain extent, we ask that in our own lives. Why would we leave, as it were, the luxuries of culture and endure the wilderness of a Torah culture? Now, we, we all love Torah lifestyle, and there's nothing particularly challenging necessarily or difficult, and Torah is completely doable, and everybody that says the law can't be done is, is simply wrong. We've demonstrated this many times. If the law, if it was impossible to keep the law, because people, you already hear that, right? Everybody says, nobody can keep the law. Nobody can keep it. Now, if you take that to a logical conclusion in the natural world, then we should all be in prison. Because we have a, a set of laws. And by the way, the, the laws that we have just here in, in, in Tejas, 
the penal code is like this, this thick, right? So there's a lot more laws in the penal code than, than there are in the, in the Torah. But you're not in prison. So, that's, so somehow we're able to keep all of the Texas penal code, but we're not able to keep God's penal code. Somehow, you know, we're able to do that. Now, it would be completely unjust for Hashem to give us a law that we couldn't keep and then punish us for it, right? So we can keep it. That's not the problem. Nevertheless, we are in this wilderness. We're outside of culture. We, we suffer to a certain extent because of it. Um, so why would we do this? And the quote is, for a trivial goal, any hardship is great. But for a great goal, any hardship is trivial. When we understand the prize, when we understand that, that what we're seeking out, if, to, if, if we consider it trivial to us, if we consider the kingdom of God trivial, then any hardship that we experience is going to be great. Oh, man, I want, to, I want to follow God. I want to say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Sound the alarm in Zion, Zion. And so you say, okay, you want to follow God? Yeah, well, here's the deal. You can't buy chicken at Walmart anymore. You've got to go across town. 45-minute drive, and get it at kosher heaven. <laughs> you want fried chicken tonight? Great. You either fry it at home or you got to drive over there and get it. Oh, man, that's a hardship. And it's a, that's a big mountain. That's a giant mountain in my life. It's huge. I can't, I can't go to Chick-fil-A. Can't go there. Everybody, goes, everybody who's holy goes to Chick-fil-A, God. <laughs> Yeah. God, I vote Republican. I got to go to Chick-fil-A. But when we consider those little things as huge mountains in our life, it's because the kingdom of God is trivial in our life. But when the when we consider the kingdom of God a great goal, then everything else is just trivial. It's a minor inconvenience. It's a minor inconvenience. So it says, who is the real, what, what, what makes up a real person? What are we really about? It says, in a very real sense, a human being is what he thinks and what he desires. For the essence of man is not his body, but his soul. Human brute force, it says here, can be replaced by animals and even machines. The contribution of his strength is therefore transitory. What is great in man and enduring is his legacy in the product of his mind and his heart. Whatever preoccupies his intelligence and fires his passion at any given moment is the essential essence of the person at that particular time. The sacred writings frequently say of the very righteous, Shekinah medavret mitoch gevaron. The Shekinah speaks from his throat. The person who lives, breathes, and thinks the word and will of God becomes a conduit 
for his maker's utterance. The throat and mouth are his, but the speech is God's. That's a sense, that's what our parochet says. It says, God, I, I order my thoughts to praise you, but you, Hashem, give me the power to speak, the power to praise you. I've ordered my, this comes from the, the, the Rosh Hashanah Machzor, by the way, that, that I've, I've put it all together. I've put all the words together. I've got everything I want to say, but it's you who empowers me to give your name praise. It says, conversely, the wicked are called corpses even in their lifetime. Barakot 18b, because people who occupy themselves with dead, impure, impermanent matters are themselves without a meaningful life. It reminds me uh, of kind of the speech from, from uh, Braveheart. It's a great movie. It's a great romantic movie. And he's talking to the army, and they're talking about facing the great English army. And they're talking about, we'll go against them, and we'll die. And he says, I. <laughs> he's talking about, but some men are alive, but they don't really live. Because they don't have freedom. Freedom. We have to truly live. And sometimes we think that, by not accepting the Torah in our life and being able to do whatever we want, we think that's freedom, but in fact, it's bondage. We were more free in the wilderness with all the harshness of the wilderness than we were in all the luxury of Egypt. I, I'm like a lot of people. I think it would be great to have all the luxuries of, a, of, a, of an affluent person, the great big home, the giant yacht, all the food and all the drink that you could ever want, the, the luxury jets and those kinds of things. And I'm also aware of the fact that a lot of times that's bondage in people's life. I'm not against it. Don't get me wrong. I don't fault a wealthy person. I'm not, I don't look at wealthy people with disdain at all. I'm just simply saying that a lot of times the more you have, the more you desire. The more you have, the more you want. And it can become a... Uh, it can become a trap in your life. And by the way, nobody on their deathbed talks about all the beautiful things they have. Right? They talk about their relationships. They talk about their friends. They talk about their dreams and so, so on. It says here, when, it ex when, when it, Israel experienced Sinai, it would be ready for even greater things. So it was worthy of redemption even when they were not worthy of redemption. Remember how Yeshua said, I go to the Father and because I do the greater things than these shall you do? Why did he say that? Again, there's nothing new in the New Testament. Why did he say that? He said that because he's the living Torah and he knew that when we accepted him as the living Torah, we would do greater things than he was doing. Now, at the moment, he's talking, he, he was illustrating this by the fact that he was doing miracles. And a lot of people thought, oh, I'm going to be able to do greater miracles than the Messiah. And God, the greatest miracle you could do is to spread divine consciousness in the world. The greatest miracle you could do, you think that raising the dead is a miracle? That's nothing. Saving a soul is a miracle because you saved the whole universe at that moment. 
Everybody's out there chasing miracles, just like the person who wants wealth chases the money. Chasing the prophecy. You're chasing the benefit, but not the God. You're chasing the, you're chasing the glory, but not the glory giver. God said, listen, when they accept my Torah, greater things than these shall they do. Why? Because they're accepting my word. And when we have the word, we have everything. Some people are after the table of showbread, and some people are after the menorah. But God says, you've missed it. If you go for the ark, you get all three. That's what God is trying to tell us. So we endure the, heart, the hardship because we understand that the prize is so great. The real person is what we think and what we do, and what we believe and what we hear. Self-nullification. Israel did what the angels did. This was what made Israel so great. We became self-nullified. We said, Hashem, I don't have to understand it. I'm going to do it. Just because we say that we're going to do it <clears throat> doesn't mean that we don't have, we, we're not allowed to ask about it. It's just like our children. We come home and maybe we're in a hurry. We've got somebody come over, a special guest. We're in a rush. We call ahead or text ahead or send a tweet ahead or whatever and tell our children, start cleaning the house. I'll be home in a minute. Now, if our children say, okay, well, first of all, I need to understand why I need to clean the house. Could you tell me why I need to clean the house? Before I start cleaning the house, you say, well, I'm going to get home. Uh, when they find your body. And so the child cleans the house, and then when you get home, then because, why are we doing this? Well, then it's okay while they're vacuuming to say, mm, the reason you're vacuuming is because that Jesus is coming. Right? God doesn't mind you asking questions as long as you're doing it. But the problem we have in our Greek mind is we want to, we want to debate with God and tell him, I will do 90% of what you want me to do because I understand the 90%. But these few things, I'm not, they're off the table right now. It says, how was the Torah offered to the nations? There's a sharp contrast, it says, between Israel and the other nations. The sages teach that the Torah was available to every nation on earth. By the way, if God made the Torah available to every nation, it's because he wanted them to accept it. God is never going to offer you something he doesn't want to give you. That would be a cruel God. Can you imagine a father offering his daughter an ice cream when he doesn't want her to take it? That'd be mean. Would you like an ice cream? Yes, I would. Oh, go to hell, you sinner. But that's how we treat God. God wanted us, he told him to take the law, and I took it, and I tried it, and he sent me to hell for it. Some people say, I want to do all that God says to do. He said to eat kosher. Except that. It says, bloody Edom could not accept a Torah that forbade bloodshed, and thieving Ishmael did not, didn't want a part of a Torah that forbade stealing. Lysatius Moab could not recognize a law that did not allow for adultery. 
They wanted, see, they, you know what that tells me? Edom didn't want a lack of bloodshed, but he, that presumes he's okay with all the other stuff. Ishmael didn't want the law that forbade theft, but that says he's okay with everything else. Moab wanted to get rid of adultery, but he's okay with preventing murder. In other words, they're Christians. No, no, hold on. It just simply means that they accept some of the laws, but not all of them. That's the problem. Now, it goes on to say, that, listen, because everybody says, well, you, wait, wait, Rabbi, you think you're perfect. Yeah, I do. I am perfect. I'm perfect. <laughs> the problem I have with our mikvah is I can't sink. I'm out there in the middle. I'm trying to try and go down. This is tough. I'm like, come on, Lord, please help. This is one time. <sighs> it says in the long list of 613 commandments, there are surely many that came hard to the individual Jew. All of us have our ones that we struggle with. It says, can, here's a question that this commentary poses. Can any one of us claim to be totally as God would wish us to be? Or even as we wish we are, ourselves could be? Is there anybody that looks in the mirror and says, man, I have nothing to work on today. Woo, uh. Perfect. Tom back there saying, yeah, Tom, that's me. Uh, most days. No, I got you, Tom. I understand. <laughs> Anybody float in their kitchen on Arab Shabbat and just walking on sunshine? <laughs> Everything's perfect. The candles light themselves. <laughs> the word Shema, hear or listen, represents, it says here, more than the capacity to absorb information. It says, when the Torah says, Shema Yisrael, that is, Hero Israel, Adonai our God, Adonai is one, it asks for more than, than just the attention of the listeners. It asks us to show insight and conviction, to interpret events and order our lives in accordance with the overriding fact of Adonai's oneness. We have to, the, the we will hear and we will do is basically saying, listen, Hashem, your word and your mission and who you are in my life is more important than anything else. And at some point, you'll be tested in that, maybe more than once. It talks about this sort of listening is attributed particularly to Yitro, who came at this time to to convert to Judaism. It says, Jethro heard, and after he heard, he became a Jew. He, because here's what's unique. It talks about in the commentary that everybody in the world heard the word of God. Everybody in the world heard God's word. But only Jethro came because he heard. You know, uh, 
the halakha of the mikvah is, you know, the mikvah has a filtration system. And it has a heater. Because <laughs> winter's coming. It has a heater. And it, yes, it's, and that's right, Shoshana. It's, it's, it's representing that it's spring water. So the spring water is cold. And anyway, it's got a heat. It's got all that. And it's got a, you know, it's got a beautiful little waterfall. So when you're, we're showing to people, it looks really pretty. You know, fish are jumping through the water and all that. But all that has to be turned off when it comes time to mikvah. Which, by the way, is surreal. Because when you're standing in the mikvah and the water is just calm. And then when you immerse, all you hear is the splash of the water of your immersion and then the subsequent ripples hitting against the, and it's just quiet in there. What's well, interesting because that's exactly how it was when God spoke his word from, the, from the Mount Sinai. This is why it has to be calm because the Torah is likened to water. It says in the Midrash, Shemos Rabbah 29.9, it says that when God spoke on this occasion, the earth was silent without a sound to distort his words. When the Holy One, blessed be he, presented the Torah at Sinai, it says not a bird chirped, not a fowl flew, not an ox lowed, not an angel ascended, not a seraph proclaimed kadosh. The sea itself was completely calm. Not a creature made a sound. All the vast universe, even the stars in the heavens, stopped and were silent when the voice went forth and said, I alone am Adonai, your God. And when we're standing in those waters of the mikvah, you're standing in the primordial waters of creation before there was a creation. You say, well, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm being renewed. See, no, you don't really understand it. When you're in the mikvah, you're going all the way back to when the spirit of the living God hovered over the vast waters of the deep. And that's why those waters are quiet because when you're standing there and, and you're believing God for renewal, he wants everything quiet so that you can hear the words, An- Anoki Hashem. I am God and you should have no other gods before me. It's interesting because many people think, many, many good Jews think that because God said, don't make an image of me, it means he doesn't have an image. It's not what he said. God never said he didn't have an image. Do you realize that? God never, ever says anywhere, ever, that he doesn't have an image. He said, you didn't see an image. But then again, if that, he says that in the written Torah, but if you study the oral Torah, as I'm about to show you, he, we actually did see an image. But what he's trying to say is that there's not one image that I am. He just said, don't make an image of me. Because, see, when we make an image of God and we say this is the image that we've made, that we've made, not that he made, that we've made, this is why it's important, another reason why it's important for Yeshua to have be a virgin birth, because if he's not a virgin birth, then we can claim that we made the image. But he made the image. That's why there's, Yeshua is never described, so that we're not making little statuettes of, of, we're not making little bobby head Yeshua dolls on our dashboard by the way I just want to think I just want to say this I, we talked about this in the mikvah house I couldn't believe it I, I don't know why I can't believe it I should believe in anything these days but I was at a particular store which will remain nameless 
and we were looking at entry mats. And I happened to notice that there was an entry mat. This is a mat. I want you to understand, an entry mat. What do you do with an entry mat? You put it in front of your door and you wipe your feet on it. And the mat says, this house runs on coffee and Jesus. So the name that's above all names in that, their mind is now below your feet. And you're wiping your feet on it. It says, the children of Israel had an urgent request. The children of Israel had an urgent request. They said, it is our desire to see our king. As much as they revered Moses, they wished to experience the awesome revelation of a direct communication from God himself. God acquiesced, unlike mortal kings who addressed their subjects through ministers and heralds at Sinai, God spoke directly to each person. In other words, he revealed himself to each person. This is why, by the way, it says that it talks about in the commentary that Hashem came. It says here, Hashem assumes many guises. This is in the Machzor for Shavuot. God assumes many guises. He appears as a mighty warrior. He appears as a judge. He appears as a merciful father, and so on. Nevertheless, he said, Anoki Hashem, in order to indicate that even though I appear in many manifestations, you should not think that there's many gods. I'm, I am God, and there is no other but me. Now, in Yochanan chapter 14, in verse 8, Yochanan 14 and verse 8, it says, Philippos said to him, My master, please show us the Father, and it will be sufficient to us. They had the same, no, again, nothing new in the New Testament. They said, we want to see Hashem, just like our forefathers saw him in Mount Sinai. Why did, he, why did Philip ask that? Because he knew, because he studied oral tradition, that the fathers saw Hashem at Mount Sinai. He wants the same experience. Hey, just, just show me the Father. That's, an, that's all I need. And Yeshua said to him, I've been with you for so many days, and you, Philippos, don't know me yet? Somebody said, I don't believe in a divine Messiah. You don't believe in the gospel. Philippos said, I want to see the Father. And Yeshua looked at him and said, you don't, you don't recognize me, do you? He says, the one who sees me sees the Father. So why would you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in my Father and my Father is in me? It's exactly what they said about Isaac, by the way. When you've seen Isaac, you've seen Abraham. That's what they said about Joseph. They said, if you see Joseph, you've seen Pharaoh. God uttered the Ten Commandments. It says all these statements in a single utterance. The Gur Aryeh explains that the purpose of this single utterance was to symbolize to Israel that the entire Torah is a single, inseparable unit. The Ten Commandments and the Torah as a whole are not a collection of separate commandments and elements. They are one single unit. This is why, by the way, very often it refers to the Torah as God's mitzvah, not mitzvot. 
Therefore, if the, if the theology presented to a Jewish person is that some commandments are relevant and others aren't, that's why it's an automatic conversation ender. You say, no, I, no, no, don't. Look at the peace in my eyes. Because the, the, the understanding from Judaism is if you remove even one commandment, you have removed the entire commandment. Because you can't, you, 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 in order to remove a piece, you have to remove the whole. Why is that? Because the Torah is God and God is Echad. So it says, consequently, no one can say that he can abrogate or ignore one word or one commandment without affecting the remainder of the Torah. This is why the sages teach that someone who denies the divine origin of even a single word of the Torah has made a heretical statement. It says Rashi explains that God, he explains this from the Makilta, what I was saying just a minute ago, that why God deemed it necessary to identify himself as the one omnipotent ruler of the universe. This is a fact that presumably was well known to the people of Israel, so why would God have a need to say it? It says God assumed various guises when he revealed himself to the people. When he split the sea, destroyed Pharaoh's army, he appeared as a mighty warrior and so on. When he gave the Torah, he appeared as an elderly scholar. And so this gave the pagans duality, the, the opportunity to say that there is duality in Hashem. And he was saying, no, listen, there's only one God. It's all me, even though you see. It's interesting to note, too, by the way, that the commandments are given, as it says here, using the singular possessive suffix cha, as in elokeka, instead of the plural suffix kem. In other words, when God says, I give these commandments to you, he didn't say, I give them to them. And the reason is, is because this was meant to teach every Jew that they should feel as if God personally gave them the Ten Commandments to them. And that their adherence to God's Torah means that the entire universe existence is dependent upon their personal fidelity to God's holy covenant. Therefore, we should not think that it was given to somebody else, but not to me. The second commandment is a prohibition against all aspects of idol worship. Idolatry, in fact, is the only commandment whereby God says he's a jealous God. Did you realize that? The only commandment in all the Torah where God says, I'm jealous is with respect to idolatry. That if you break another mitzvah, God has a lot of mercy and a lot of grace, and he'll work with you on it, help you through it. But once you get into idolatry, that's a whole nother level. And so idolatry is likened to adultery. The definition of adultery, according to the Torah, is when a woman who is married has relationship with a man other than her husband, or when a man has relationships with a woman who is married. That's idolatry, or excuse me, adultery, which is likened to idolatry. You say, well, Yeshua said, though, Rabbi, that if you look at a woman and you lust after her, then you've committed adultery. Yes, but if you look up the wording there, you find out that the word woman means a married woman because you cannot commit adultery with an unmarried woman. Biblically speaking, that's your biblical definition, Torah definition. So, 
when it comes to idolatry, God considers us to be married to him. We are his wife. The, the family of Israel is his wife. And therefore, when we go after a false god, we are committing adultery, which is a, why it's such a grave sin. It says, whoever accepts the idol as deities is considered to have denied the entire Torah. Thus, Israel is warned not to give credence at all to the gods of pagans. We're not even to give them any credence whatsoever. We're not even allowed, according to the Torah law, we're not allowed at all to uh, even have one as a decoration in our, in our home. You say, well, I want to have Asian nights, so I'm going to get a little fat guy statue and put it there. I'm not worshiping it. It's just a little statue. just want to have it in there. Not allowed to do that. In fact, the scripture says that if you take an idol like that into your house, even though you're not worshiping it, that you, that you like it, will be set apart for destruction. This is why people say, well, I want to do the pagan holiday, but I'm not. I know, I know it was all about all that pagan stuff way back in the olden days, but I'm not doing that now. Now it's about something different. And that's how we qualify it, right? We do things like this. It's not about like that anymore. As if that matters. It doesn't matter to God. And it says that in the, the Talmud and Abu Zarah, it says, teaches that this, that it is improper to have even anything that is vaguely resembling prostration before an idol. Thus, if a thorn is lodged in a person's foot, or his money was scattered before him, and he was needing to kneel down to get it, if he happened to be in front of an idol, he should not. He is not allowed to remove the thorn or to gather the coins in such a way that would even appear as if he was bowing before the idol. So there goes the whole thing about, I want to go to the festival, but I'm, not, I'm going to the festival, but I don't, I don't, I'm not in any way doing, you know, believing in that stuff. Not allowed. It's too serious. It's too serious of, of a situation. This is why, like, uh, it's put on such a high level. The third commandment, prohibition against taking vain oaths. Just real quick. I'm kind of running out of time here, but. The four vain oaths are swearing to contradict a clearly known fact. For example, that a marble pillar is made of gold. Swearing to verify what is clearly known, for instance, that a clearly visible stone is a stone. Swearing to violate any of God's commandments. Swearing to do something that, that one obviously lacks the strength or the ability to accomplish. Sefer Hanuk concludes that the purpose of these prohibitions against swearing an oath is to fortify our faith that there is none as mighty and enduring as the Holy and Blessed be He. It is fitting, therefore, that we mention His name with awe and fear and quivering and trembling, not like the revelers who speak of trivial matters whose existence is temporary and will soon be a loss to oblivion. The fourth commandment is the commandment of the Shabbat, of, of course. Most people believe in the nine commandments. Like I've said before, everybody gets frustrated because we took the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse. And we're not doing them anyway. So who cares? I mean, honestly. 
There was a big deal about that just not too long ago. Everybody's getting sad. They're crying crocodile tears. And I want to, and I don't want to be mean, but I would, and I'm, I'm listen, I'm, I'm for the Ten Commandments, right? I, sh- I think they should stay in the courthouse. And I would also like to go to the people that are protesting and saying, do you believe in the Ten Commandments? Yeah. So you do them? Yeah. So you don't work on, on Saturdays? Well, no, 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 that one, that one's not, uh, that one's not for today. That's been, that was nailed to the cross. Well, if you've already taken them down, then why are you mad that they're taking them down? The McKilta teaches that the Sabbath should be the highlight of a Jew's week. Rabbi Yitzhak says, do not count days as others count them. Rather, you should count every weekday in relationship to the Shabbat. The Ramban elaborates, other nations consider the weekdays to be unrelated to each other. That's why they give them separate names, like Sunday and Monday. And it even says here that Sunday, of course, many people know it's named after the sun, and Monday is named after the moon. But it says Israel should count the days as they relate to the Shabbat. That's why when people say, well, if you want to make your, your Shabbat on Tuesday, that's fine. If you want to make it on Wednesday, why? Because that's a pagan mentality because it says, listen, all days are just kind of, they're not related to one another. We have a commandment here to honor one's parents. It says the first set of the five commandments deal with man's relationship with God, while then these next set, set, beginning with this one, with the relations between man and his fellow, And so honoring one's parents is given as a high commandment. It's likened to recognizing God. The prohibition of murder is actually the the commandment not to kill. We're not to kill a cold-blooded, or not to kill a cold-blooded murder, that is. Murder is not the same, of course. People have taken that to be pacifist, like we're not supposed to kill anybody, so they don't want to go and be soldiers or what have you. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the commandment to not murder someone. We talked about adultery and the definition of adultery and what that, that is exactly. And, and by the way, just to touch on that for a moment, because I'm sure somebody's out there thinking, well, wait a minute. How come that sounds kind of sexist? How come it's a woman that's married and you, that's adultery and if a man has relations with her, but what if the man is married? It's not adultery. You're thinking... What? It's not. And why is that, though? One of the reasons is, is because the Torah allows for a man to have multiple wives. Um, and so, therefore, he would be there, he would be, the, he'd be guilty of adultery in each case. That would include people like Abraham and Jacob and King David and King Solomon and a host of others. Now, we don't have bigamy or polygamy in our current time period, but there's a reason why we don't. Um, that's, that's for another time. But I just want to point that out. That's why that's not, that it's written that way. So the prohibition of stealing is actually translated literally the prohibition against kidnapping. You, we've all been taught, I, th- I found this one to be the most fascinating. We've all been taught thou shalt not steal, steal. But in fact, it literally, it's thou shalt not kidnap. 
and it falls in the line of making someone, kidnapping them, making your personal slave and so on, and making them do things for you. And the reason is, is because that, these are all uh, commandments that have basically capital punishments associated with them. Stealing is not a capital punishment, but kidnapping is. So the Torah says kidnapping. So underneath kidnapping is the branch of all other theft, but the highest level of theft is stealing a person. The prohibition against bearing false witness. It's forbidden to lie in court. It's forbidden even to give a false impression. Thus, if someone's teacher, whom he knows to be absolutely honest, tells his students, someone denies that he owes me money, but I have only one witness, please come to court and stand nearby my witness so that the liar will think that you came to testify. That may cause him to admit the truth. That, too, is forbidden. We're not to play shenanigans. And by the way, false being a false witness is something that could lead to your death as well. We're not allowed to covet. We're not allowed to covet what other people have. This is why I often say that I don't, I don't fault a wealthy person. These are the commandments. It says, you shall not covet. How can the Torah command people not to do something which is a natural, as natural as desiring what someone else has? Does this not fly in the face of human nature? Ibn Ezra explains, this was a profound psychological insight. An ignorant, poverty-stricken peasant might be expected to lust after a beautiful neighborhood, but it never dawns on him to covet the queen. She is so far above his humble station that such a thought never enters his mind. Just as normal people would not violate their mothers, when someone is trained all his life to think of something as removed from and forbidden uh, to him, he will not covet it because it's not within his frame of reference. Consequently, it says, if someone were truly cognizant of God's hand in the world and he recognized that someone else's property was given by God to that person and not to him, he wouldn't covet if people desire what is not theirs, it's an indication that they lack proper faith in God, that a person must develop such faith is truly the proper province of these commandments. We don't covet because we understand if God wanted us to have it, we'd have it. Where's my boat, God? Baruch haba Adonai.